So, uh, hey, this is a control structure, everyone. Uh, this is episode 46, which makes this our 47th episode. And this is uh, for October 2nd, 2013. Wow, it's October already. Uh, I'm your host, Andrew Bailey, and uh, because Chris uh, uh, lost his voice somewhere, um, and apparently he has not found it, uh, we'll have another guest. Uh, we'll come back, uh, Stephen Orvis. Hi, Steve. Hi. How's it been? Oh, pretty good. Oh, uh, well, glad to hear. So, uh, you do anything exciting recently? Exciting. Um, last... Saturday, I went off to the new Field and Stream store that's in Cranberry there, and then on the way home, I went to pretty much every garage sale along the road, so I stopped at like seven garage sales and got a bunch of stuff for like under under $10, so that was my most exciting thing that happened in the last week, I guess. <laughs> so, you're one of those people who stops at every garage sale? You, you did this of your own volition? Yes, because there's cheap stuff like that costs less than a dollar most of the time. So I, I stop sometimes. I, I have found like in the past like monitors, LCD monitors on back when we upgraded from a CRT to an LCD monitor, we've picked up a few agarod cells and stuff. So hmm. sometimes it can be good if you're trying to be cheap. Yeah, that sort of reminds me that... Uh... You know, I've been sort of staring at uh, some really old desktop computers that I salvaged from my uncle's place when he died. Um, like, I think one's a Pentium 2 and another oh, one's wow. like an Athlon 800 megahertz or something. So I want to, you know, like get those, you know, running so I can, uh, you know, play old games on them, <laughs> essentially. So, and I remember telling you this and you just lit up. Yes, I, I, I like the idea of putting Windows 98 on that and running games. No, is, is, it, is it the Pentium 2, is that powerful enough for Windows 98? I'm trying to think of the oh, system yeah. specs. Oh, yeah. Was, I, think I can the, even think of the clock that. Uh, I think the yeah. minimum spec for Windows 98 is like a 486 at 66 megahertz or so. Okay, so then... So a Pentium 2 should run that really well. So this is 233 megahertz to 450, so I guess it would be okay. I do remember the first Windows 98 computer we had, it was like 65 megabytes of RAM, it like it was just barely going. Uh, yeah, because I remember having a Pentium 166 uh, megahertz uh, with Windows 98. Uh, I guess it would be the first edition. Okay. Uh, like, I never really played around with the second one for some reason. Uh... But, uh, yeah, uh, Windows 98, I'm not sure if it had 24 megs, or was that when we still had Windows 95? Oh, well. Uh, playing StarCraft on an old computer with 24 megs of RAM is not a fun thing, because apparently that game does not like you having a RAM of differing size. Really? And That's to fun. have 24 megs of RAM, you need two eights and two fours. So, yeah, two eights, that's 16, two fours, that's another eight. So that's 24. Apparently StarCraft, you know, freaks out and crashes randomly. That's odd. They must have coded it in there to be multiples of the so base two or something. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, uh, Pentium 2 has no trouble running Windows 98. Okay. 
<sighs> well, anyways, uh, enough uh, navel-gazing into the past, I guess. Um, and let's uh, go on to the future. Uh, see, I'm not sure if the uh, Curiosity rover, what... I'm pretty sure that's more powerful than a Pitium 2, right? I would say so. Yeah. So, like, I, I know they're not as fast as, you know, normal PCs or anything, but, you know, Curiosity still has, you know, enough, you know, power to, you know, send back pictures and do experiments and stuff. You figure that they'd, they've got to have a good bit of picture processing. Ooh, this is videos. Or can't, can't they send back videos from what they're doing, too? So you figure if you're doing, doing videos, it's it's got pretty good power in it. Uh, speaking of curiosity, uh, Michael Eisen has uh, released all the documents uh, from uh, Curiosity, uh, that rover on Mars. Um, apparently it was locked behind a paywall, and uh, apparently he paid it and uh, released it. Um, because, you know, this is the federal government paying for this, and all works of the federal government are in the public domain. And he doesn't think that it's right to be locked behind a paywall. The funny part about this is I, I saw he had an update to the article there. And he says that now that they they went ahead and opened them and released them for free publicly in their site. So it's like they admitted they were wrong. They shouldn't have been doing that. Yep. So that's uh, progress for you. So... Uh, but apparently there might not be any more data because apparently Curiosity is shut down with the rest of the government. So, um, along with a lot of other things. <laughs> but apparently this is uh, incorrect as uh, the JPL is actually, you know, that runs the place, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, mm -hmm. is actually a contractor to NASA. So they're not officially part of the government. They're just working for them. It's kind of odd, like with the government shutdown. It's the the mix of of what's shut down, what's not shut down. Uh, like I was reading about NASA and the number of people that they were shut down, and then it's uh, that there's only thirty percent people left. Well, I think and for I, NASA, it's like three percent left. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I read the wrong NSA, not NASA. But anyways, yeah, ninety-seven percent of its more than eighteen thousand employees are uh, staying home. So, but it's interesting you uh, mentioned the NSA because uh, the NSA is really panicking because apparently they only have thirty percent of their uh, workforce on the job. So, and uh, I say, you know, let them panic, do whatever. You know, Maybe they won't be spying on us for the couple of days we'll be safe. <laughs> yeah, so I guess you better get planning whatever. So, uh, you've heard of CERN, right? Uh, no, I haven't. It's like that, uh, you've heard of the LHC, right? You're still, still going to have to go further in this one. Okay, um, that big particle collider that everyone's afraid is going to make black holes. Okay, yes, I have heard of that one. Okay, um, that is at CERN, and apparently that is now on Google Street View. So, like, apparently they've taken their Street View backpack or whatever inside this place so you can actually, like, walk next to it. You know, 
I just had a very funny image when you said Street View Backpacker. <laughs> this guy with a backpack and this big Camry globe mounted on top of it. And the backpack has like Google on it. He has like a Google helmet on it. <laughs> That's essentially what it is. No joke. <laughs> that would be really funny to see him. I wonder if there's pictures of that. Oh. Yeah, so now you can, uh, you know, walk around the LHC and, uh, you know, actually look at, you know, everything that's there. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah. So I was trying to think, is this the first inside of a building that Google has put on the Street View that you know of? Um, I think they're, like, trying, like, a few years ago they were trying to make a big push to map the insides of buildings, so... Um, I highly doubt that this is the first one. It would be in handy for like a big office building or something. Uh, you could go out beforehand and kind of figure out what floor things are on. So I, I, I Googled, uh, Google Street View Backpacker and Google Images, and there is, there's like a, a backpack with like this big ball on top. It looks like it's normally a blue one, but there's a green one sometimes. I'll go ahead and throw and- it into the dock here. Okay, I'll, I'll grab an image and... Well, the URL, anyway. Yes. So That's a good example of one. I'll, I'll put it in the doc. There you go. All right. So, um, even though Chris has been uh, out for a little while, um, we uh, finally have a uh, Kickstarter of the week. Um, this is uh, Big Giant Circles, uh, The Glory Days. Uh, Big Giant Circles is uh, Jimmy Hinson. He uh, makes uh, chip tunes, um, so uh, he's had you know quite a quite a record uh, going. He apparently was uh, hired by uh, EA or Bioware or whoever uh, to make some music for uh, Mass Effect Two, uh, which unfortunately was not used. Um, but uh, uh, like whoever's in charge of Call of Duty. Uh, apparently he made a track for Call of Duty uh, Black Ops 2 and uh like apparently like one of his like that song is apparently the uh background music for the multiplayer uh like wait screen or something and uh he says that apparently it's the most popular song from the soundtrack on iTunes mm. so uh he uh his apparently the uh uh, like his big album is uh, Imposter Nostalgia, and uh, let's say it was yesterday. I decided to finally get around to listening to all of this, and uh, it's actually pretty s- sweet sounding. So, um, yeah, if you like chip tunes, you might want to uh, check this guy out. Um, so this Kickstarter uh, is for Imposter Nostalgia too. Apparently, he's uh, calling it the Glory Days. Um, he says that apparently the music is all done, but he wants to make it better. So, uh, more power to him, I guess. So I was, I was trying to figure out like his level of what he was doing with the money. Like one of the things is like, he's making the albums and the physical CDs. So is he going to make the CDs and then sell them then at his profit? And then is that the money that he's keeping for his, his effort of making this music? I suppose. So it doesn't look he he's uh, stopping anytime soon because uh, he's either like composed the soundtracks or at least remixed uh, soundtracks of many other games. 
So, yeah. And apparently he, uh, uh, the original, uh, uh, Imposter Nostalgia album had, uh, music from, uh, other people in it as well, or at least collaborated with, uh, other people on it. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, worthy enough to check out. So, you know, I guess I'll play for, uh, uh one of the tracks from the original N- Imposter Nostalgia. So it's, I think it's, it's, it's probably my uh, favorite track of the album. in a follow-up to uh, last week's Epic GPU podcast, uh, if you haven't already, uh, go ahead and listen to it. But uh, AMD has announced Mantle. Uh, that's a new low-level graphics API. Um, this API will be specific to AMD hardware, so Radeons only, and uh, like only recent ones that have the graphics core next architecture, which I think might have been their last generation or two. Um, apparently this maps to their hardware a lot better than other APIs like Direct3D and OpenGL, and it's a lot lower than either of those two, so it has uh, much less CPU overhead. So I was reading that article, and they were talking about that they were speculating that perhaps this is actually the same interface that's used for on the Xbox for the gaming and they were saying that maybe it would make it easier for people to be porting code that was used for the Xbox directly into, like, PC games. Yeah, and uh, this, uh, and the, to be specific, this is the upcoming Xbox. And, uh, and probably, uh, if it's similar to the Xbox, it might be pretty similar also to the PS4, uh, since uh, AMD is also making the GPU for that, too, and the CPU. So... Um, you know, there's a lot of speculation of, uh, what might happen to this in that, you know, um, uh, Microsoft and Sony might actually hate them for doing this. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking about that. That's a pretty good monopoly for them if they've got the, the PlayStation and they've got, like, Xbox and then they, they have their own gaming platform that's generic that, that kind of makes them the winner all around. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, great that this is, you know, going on, uh, but apparently it appears to be Windows only for the moment. And, uh, uh, unfortunately they haven't released any kind of SDK or code samples. Um, but uh, I'll look for specific documents, uh, you know, whenever they finally get released. They don't seem to be out right, right at this moment. Um, but apparently EA has, uh, an advanced uh, an advanced copy of whatever, uh, because it looks like, uh, Battlefield 4 will be the first game to support this, um, with their Frostbite 3 engine, and it looks like, uh, 
like any Frostbite 3 game that is played on Windows um, will default to Mantle where it can. So, and Battlefield 4 will probably be the first game with a patch in December. So I was, I was trying to think how that would work on a PC game. I guess since, you know, it's specific to AMD, then, then if you use the different graphics card, it just default and use the normal DirectX code, I guess, would yeah. be how it would work. Yeah. So, and uh, I'm not exactly sure if Battlefield 4 is, like, on Mac or Linux. So I guess they'd have to have an OpenGL code path for that. Uh, it's true. So, but, uh, you know... Compatibility shouldn't be a major problem, even if AMD stops supporting this, uh, because you know again, you know, uh, you know, engines are supposed to be uh, at least modern engines are very flexible and they have multiple rendering backends, so it's probably just you know swap out a library or module or whatever uh, to use a different API. So um, maybe this will give uh, AMD some leverage with Nvidia. Uh, who knows, maybe Mantle maps well to NVIDIA hardware as well. Uh, if so, there might be a deal where NV can support Mantle if AMD can support CUDA, uh, which is uh, NVIDIA's other proprietary API. Ah, uh, I, I haven't heard of CUDA before, so... Yeah, um, have you heard of, uh, I think it's Direct Compute Shaders in DirectX? Or maybe you've heard of OpenCL? Um, not specifically. Like, I've, I've read a little bit about shaders, but I've never gone super in-depth with them. So, yeah, with uh, shaders are sort of, you know, like a specific rendering process for graphics. Uh, what uh, CUDA does in OpenCL is that it, you know, gen- you know like, generic-fies it even more, uh, such that, you know, here's, like, a whole bunch of data in, like, a format that's not a texture or like a screen space or something and you know like actually runs custom programs on them instead of having to shove them through a graphics pipeline so um yeah that's in the CUDA is a NVIDIA specific so you got something NVIDIA specific and got something AMD specific and I'm pretty sure that someone might have hacked CUDA to run on uh, ATI or AMD hardware. Uh, I see. So it, I'm 100% sure that it's possible in the hardware level to, you know, run CUDA on AMD chips. So the point is, it just takes some cooperation there and knowledge from people of both companies, and they could probably put that together. Exactly. So. Um, let's see, and talking about this, uh, you know, Mantle being specific to AMD, uh, uh, let's see, I, I never used this or really looked at this too much, but apparently there was, uh, another API called Glide, uh, back in the 90s, It was made by, uh, 3DFX, which, you know, was the company that really started off the, uh, 3D accelerators for PCs in the 90s. And uh, Glide was, you know, a graphics API specific to their cards. So, you know, you know, I'm not exactly sure what to think about, you know, like proprietary graphics APIs. You know, because, you know, every console has their own graphics API. So it's just, you know, another one. Yeah. So, 
Yeah. One thing I noticed about Glide was on a Wikipedia article there is saying about how originally people had been trying to make an emulator, but then they were getting starting to get legal legal pressure from the company about doing that. So it does seem like by having specific APIs like that, that could inhibit people that try to make workarounds for it. Exactly. But uh, when uh, 3DFX was on their last legs, they apparently open-sourced it or something. Yeah, I, I did see that. There's, it was like like they, they held on to it as long as they were still had a viable shot at the market. But like when they were done, they were, they were nice about it and opened it up, which I think is a good thing for a company to do. If they, if they can't make a profit on something, they should be willing to open it up and give it to people yeah. instead of just letting it go away. And then uh, apparently two weeks later, they got bought by NVIDIA or something. So, yeah. Uh, but it looks like at least AMD is still going to be relevant uh, in the graphics uh, market for quite some time. Yes, I'd say this definitely puts them high in the list. So, uh, speaking of, uh, AMD has dropped a lot of documents about the building 3D drivers and you know other hardware specifics uh, for their newer GPUs uh, from the HD 5000 series to the 8000 series. Um, so this will definitely help uh, you know open source uh, driver you know coders to uh, you know code better drivers for uh, you know 3D drivers specifically. So I'm I'm thinking I heard once that Nevada is the worst for open source drivers. Would you say the AMD is then the best for like Linux and stuff for support that they provide the developers? Um, actually, NVIDIA support, you know, in general is very good on Linux and has been for several years. Um, what some people get really pissed off about, uh, Linus, uh, is uh, open source uh, drivers, apparently. Ah. Uh, NVIDIA is not too keen on uh, open source drivers anymore, uh, but at least uh, last week they were nice enough to start opening up the documents on some of their older GPUs, you know, just like AMD has been doing for uh, several years now. So, yeah, AMD decided to do things differently back around 2008 or so. You know, they were the first ones to, you know, drop, uh, you know, like specific hardware documentation, you know, all that they could. Yes. So, yeah, how nice of them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Valve, uh, they've been uh, rather busy of late. Um, they've, you know, ported Steam to Linux. Um, and just last week they announced uh, their own distribution of Linux called SteamOS. Um, and they announced, uh, you know, hardware that it will run on called, uh, uh, let's see, they announced hardware to run on uh, Steam machines, and uh, now they've announced a controller to go along with it all. So this is just simply the Steam controller, and it looks sort of odd-looking, you know, compared to other uh, game pads, in that it looks like, you know, you know, a controller, but with two big dials on it, essentially. And and it all has you know touch enabled and stuff. It's like it's like the whole thing is really like a touch screen because like your two dials are touch sensitive. I said. Yeah. Then there's in the center between the two dials is like this box that's 
another touch sensitive and it's a screen too as well yeah it's, it was an interesting design yeah. then they're talking talking about the feedback system they said that they were doing something different underneath each of the dials do some sort of feedback and they said it, it's hackable to actually act as a speaker as well however the feedback system works <laughs> yeah i thought that was funny so yeah it's uh you know great that someone's you know going into the other direction you know because uh you know controllers have essentially been about the same since the uh, dual shock uh ps1 controller so, yeah, it is very standard. You have the A, B, B, and C or whatever keys there, and your two joints. And then the uh, two trigger buttons and the two analog sticks and a D-pad. Yep. So, um, uh, for some reason, uh, Microsoft wants to reverse one of the uh, the analog sticks and the D-pad for some reason. You know, I sort of... I'm not exactly sure if that's, you know, more ideal um, like as far as ergonomics go, but, you know, I sort of like the aesthetic of having, you know, a s more symmetrical game controller, uh, more like the PlayStation style than the yeah. Xbox, but, uh, you know, kudos to Steam or excuse me, Valve, uh, for, you know, going against the green here. It's, it's definitely a very different game controller. So, and, uh, you know, they sort of, you know, done a few hacks to, uh, you know, emulate a, you know, mouse and keyboard with this. Yeah, that was, that was kind of odd because they're, they're claiming that they designed it to be able to emulate any, the keyboard and mouse necessary to play any game. So what comes to my mind is like, you can't actually type on it. I mean, like, I understand like mapping certain keys to certain points on the touchpad or something. Right. But I guess most games you don't type, type. Like, I mean, unless it's like a team chat or something. Like, that yeah. would be the only games where you actually have to type, I guess. So, and, uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure. I don't think they've even released a price for this. I'm sure that's going to be pretty pricey. <laughs> well, I mean, I wouldn't think any more than a hundred bucks. Um, really? It's, uh, I, I mean, I guess the, all the touch pads made me think in the special feedback thing made me think that was going to be pricey. I mean, I, don't I, know. I can't imagine this being any less than about $50, but yeah. I think 100 bucks would be about right. Yeah, could be. So, and it's, you know, it's great that they uh, have this, you know, sort of open you know, piece of hardware. Yes, I saw that. They, they, they showed like the diagram and they're like, they said that they're, they're the, the uh, exploded hackers. Yeah. yeah. That was that was that was good. I like it when companies do that. Like, oh, I forget the name of the company. They had like this open source dinosaur robot a few years back. I remember, but oh. it's like they just like opened the whole thing up and like you could write programs for the dinosaur and all kinds of different stuff. And it's just like they just said, "Here's the hardware. We have this existing code that we're using. You can see the code, and if you want to modify it, go for it." Yeah. Um, see, and pretty much the main reason they're doing this is that they don't really consider this a profit center, I guess. Uh, it's more of a convenience for the games, yes, perhaps. So, so they want to make you to play games better so they can sell you more games. Yeah, which makes sense. It's, it's interesting. You know, because, you know, Steam is easily the biggest thing that Valve is doing. Yes. So... I I went looking for their Steam OS tonight, and it doesn't look like it's released yet. 
I thought that'd be fun to try. Yeah. It's it's pretty but, interesting. Hey, breaking news. A valve can finally count to three. <laughs> you know, the yeah, I guess the uh joke might uh, finally be coming to an end because let's see, we have Portal Two, we have Half Life Two, we have Half Life Two Episode Two, uh Dota Two. Uh, but then they have apparently no problem with the number four, uh, left for dead two. Um, so it's, you know, natural here that, you know, they finally figure out about this number three, uh, in that they have filed the Half-Life 3 trademark in Europe. So this is not uh, any sort of confirmation that it's actually being done or if there's any progress being made on it. Just means that we can't go register that trademark. I guess. So, um, see, Randy Pitchford, I'm pretty sure you haven't heard of this guy, but uh, he's the CEO of Gearbox, and uh, which I guess this is especially relevant to me, seeing as how I recently played through Borderlands uh, that was, you know, made by Gearbox. Uh, he says that Steam machines won't challenge or worry console vendors. Uh, he somehow thinks that, uh, you know, this is, you know, a curiosity and a novelty, you know, compared to the other, uh, you know, big boy gaming platforms. See, I, I found that very odd. I, I, I just thought it was a really big thing because it's like we're bringing Linux or or to Linux for bringing the gaming world, and it's just like there's a lot of people on Linux. I, I would think this is going to be a really big thing, is what I thought. So, um, but then again, this is the guy who thinks that uh, Duke Nukem Forever is better than Half Life 2. So, go figure. So, uh, anyway, the GNU project uh, celebrates his 30th anniversary. So, uh, apparently this, uh, is the anniversary of, uh, Richard Stallman's, uh, announcement on a mailing list to, uh, implement a free version of Unix. And by free, he means, uh, free as in speech. So, um, you know, this project was started, you know, like, a long time ago, um, but uh, apparently there is an experimental Debian distribution that uh, has sort of come out of this. So, And I have to ask them, how's that kernel coming along? <laughs> oh, wait, 20 years ago you decided to use some Finnish guy's kernel instead. Uh, so I guess that's why people don't give you credit for it. Um, so I guess whoever forks it names it. Uh, with uh, Oh, and no forking actually required. <laughs> so I'm... Uh, apparently, the GNU project has a serious uh, issue with people calling Linux Linux because they'll you know make the argument that oh it's a bunch of our utilities in there too blah blah blah. Well, I mean Linux is the newer thing, so people call it Linux. Yes. Um, I, I don't think anybody's really arguing over the fact that uh, Google stole Linux and made Android. You know, no one's, you know, wanting to call it, you know, Linux slash Android or anything. Or how uh, anyone's complaining about uh, Valve stealing Linux and making SteamOS out of it. So, yeah, 
I, I thought the, uh, the, the, I forget the name of the guy who announced the, the GNU project. Uh, what was his name? Richard Stallman. Yes. But anyways, I thought it was interesting. His motivation in there, he, he, he talked about, he said, well, it was like free isn't free speech. And it seemed like I got the impression that he was saying it's like, almost like an equal thing. It's like he's going to, he wants to use software that anyone else is, equal access to so it puts them like in the same playing field so to speak as anyone else yeah kind of like the same ideas like the raspberry pies and things like that just like getting hardware to people who may not necessarily be able to afford computers and stuff just like the widespread use of software right so uh let's uh head over to the competition uh bill gates uh, he says that control alt delete was not our fault. Um, this is, uh, you know, the three fingered salute, uh, you know, that you use when things aren't going too well. Um, or when things are going perfectly well and you need to be let in. <laughs> so, like the whole argument, you know, back in the day was, you know, Microsoft wanted, you know, this one key that, uh, like, nothing else could get to, uh, that would log you in. Um, like, for some uh, government certification to uh, use uh, Windows NT. But, uh, you know, IBM uh, wouldn't want to do it. But, um, you know, I look on my keyboard right now, and there is a Windows flag on it. Yeah, see, I, I, I was thinking about that, too. It's like, they did get the Windows Start logo on so, it. <laughs> so, if... If they wanted to have their own key, they could have done it. So, um, but, uh, yeah, they, uh, they initially wanted to, uh, do like control shift escape or something, but they realized that on the keyboards back in the day that, you know, that was all on one side of the keyboard. So they wanted something, you know, a little bit more spread out. So could not possibly ever be accidentally pushed. Yes. Yeah. It's so, interesting. So, but uh, then, uh, you know, keyboard designers caught up with that and put control and alt on the other side of the space bar. So, right, no. so now you can do a one-handed big week control alt delete thing. No, I was just looking at my keyboard layout and actually control shift delete is closer than control shift escape on the right side. So, <laughs> huh. Uh, so, and, uh, Let's see, I think it was around 2002 or something that, uh, uh, like, I had signed up for a programming classes. So I walk in and sit down, and it says, press Control-Alt-Delete to log in. I'm like, um, what? <laughs> you, know, I, you know, that hadn't, I had never seen that or, you know, read about that at all. I'm like, okay, is this real? Is this right? Or something? And um, then, you know, like, the instructor looked at me and was like, what's the matter? Like, use Control-Alt-Delete to turn it off, not to log in. Yes, I remember the first time I, I was on a, a computer on a network, I was kind of the same way. I was like, why do they do it like this? So You I get mean, pretty good at typing it, though, after you, you use it all the time. You can type it pretty fast. Yeah, um... I think at least it's on my uh, work laptop that, you know, when you boot it up, it, you know, automatically has a password prompt. Oh, so, okay. Uh, it comes up with it. 
yeah, I think that's for uh, Windows 7. I, I was reading more in depth in the article there about the the beginnings of it, and they said initially, the one guy was saying that initially the alternate control, control delete wasn't supposed to be a, a feature that people would know about. It was just like a backdoor, like when they were writing the program, yeah. they could just like reboot it and quickly. And then somehow like other manufacturers found out about it that produced games and stuff. So they said then it became a handy shortcut for telling people how to install the software. You just put the floppy disk in the drive and for us alternate control delete and it was magic. It would come up by itself. So uh, gaming, you say. So I wonder what the uh, secret keystroke for uh, the Steam box will be. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, speaking of Bill Gates, uh, three of the top 20 Microsoft shareholders want him out anyway. So I guess they don't want any more uh, keyboard combination shenanigans or something. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Bill Gates, you know, even though he no longer works for Microsoft and he has not for, I think, about five or six years, he's still the... Uh, uh, chairman of the board, and still has, like, the majority of Microsoft shares, or at least the majority shareholder anyway. Yeah. Like, 4.5%. So, but uh, apparently he has this one plan that, uh, like, he's selling off, like, you know, so many shares at a time. Yeah. So that, uh, you know, apparently by 2018, he won't have any Microsoft shares so, but, uh, that was, that was kind of interesting. It's a very gradual, it's like he's just getting away from the company instead of dumping everything all at once. He's just like backing away gently. Yeah. So, yeah, this is, you know, comes at a very interesting time in that, uh, the current CEO, Steve Ballmer, is, uh, leaving in like a year or so, or within a year. So, you know, no doubt that, you know, Bill wants to be there to, you know, see the changing of the guard, I guess. Oh, that's true. That that makes good sense that he'd he'd be there to appoint the next one. So, yeah. So, uh, let's go on to something maybe a little bit more mm, in the non-fiction uh, and less speculative. The uh, six stages of debugging. So, uh, apparently this is... This has been passed around a little bit, and it's uh, just the six-point list, um, you know, like the stages of depression or whatever. Yes. Uh, uh, first step, that can't happen. Uh, number two, that doesn't happen on my machine, uh, which I have a story about that, which I'll tell you later. Uh, number three, that shouldn't happen. Number four, why does that happen? Number five, oh, I see. Number six, how did that ever work? <laughs> That's a pretty good list. Yes, that uh, goes through that all the time. Uh, so uh, here's another list, uh, because Java exceptions can be pretty stupid. Uh, so here's a guide to help you make some sense of it all. And uh, this list here has, uh, you know, humorous explanations of, you know, a lot of the uh, common Java exceptions. Uh, here's a few of them. Illegal access exception. You are a burglar and you are running a Java program during a burglary. Please finish stealing the computer, leave the premises, and try again. 
<laughs> I think that one's the best. Uh, empty stack exception. In order for Java to work, you must have a stack of Java books on your desk. Actually, one is enough if it's really thick. Uh, too many listeners exception. Uh, you are bugged by too many secret organizations. Expect a security exception soon. Uh, headless exception. Java thinks you are too stupid to be a programmer. Uh, not serializable exception. You are trying to make a TV series based on a movie. Uh, unmartial exception. You have not fulfilled your duties as an officer of the law, or whatever marshal you use to work as. Note the correct term is used to. You have been fired. Which is really ironic if you were a firefighter. Uh, unrecoverable key exception. Damn, you dropped your key down a drain. The only comfort, comfort I can offer is that the key should be unrecoverable to most other people as well, so it may not be necessary to change your locks. So, and there's uh, tons of others on there, so uh, go have fun if you want to. So, let's go over to .NET, uh, which has, I'm pretty sure it has just as many stupid exceptions in, in it. Does have quite a few interesting exceptions. My my favorite is uh, when you're working with TIFF images. Yeah. Uh, one of the image libraries, there's an exception, an out of memory exception that gets thrown. It turns out this out of memory exception happens when anything goes wrong in this particular library. So it's like something totally unrelated happens. Like the one was like you're trying to load a JPEG instead of a TIFF image, and it throws out of memory exception. And it's like <laughs> What? <laughs> Wait, so this library is part of the uh, .NET framework? The it's part of the .NET framework. I, I forget, like, wow, what exactly class it was or something, but I, I remember I, I used it and I had that problem. And then at work recently, someone had sent out a bulk email telling other people, it's like, hey, I had this problem. They, 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 it was the exact same thing I had faced. It was like out of memory exception, and it means something totally different. And it's like, really? Huh. But yeah. So, uh, .NET is uh, getting a new just-in-time compiler. It's called Rujit, and it is in 64-bit. Hey, that rhymes. Rujit 64-bit. <laughs> it does. Um, so, uh, this is, like, from the official uh, MSDN blogs. And, you know, goes over about, you know, what 64-bit is. And uh, apparently, uh, regular expressions get much faster in 64-bit. Um, probably because, uh, like, there are more registers available in 64-bit mode as compared to 32. Yeah, that would that would make sense. That seems to be the the biggest factor I can think of. So, yeah. Um, unfortunately, I don't think there's any word on uh, when this is going to come along. Wait. Uh, it Wait, it says you can download the installer now. It only works on 64-bit editions of Windows 8.1 or S Windows Server 2012 R2. So, um, it doesn't uh, change the engine on your system. Uh, we wanted to keep the CTP install clean. So, yeah. Uh, lastly, if you enable it while writing code, you'll find the edit and continue does not work on 64-bit. That's so 2012. So, I don't uh, normally use the edit and continue feature anyways. That's 
typically it's it's like if you change much of anything it doesn't work anyway so you can't like declare a new variable so it's like why even bother writing code while you're debugging yeah so i mean it's about time that everyone gets on the 64-bit bandwagon anyway so i'm pretty sure that uh, server 2012 r2 uh only comes in 64-bit really yeah i I, I recall that, you know, like one of the server, you know, operating systems, I remember Microsoft saying, okay, this is the last 32-bit. Okay. It makes so. sense, though, because it's, like it's a server, so it's like, do you really have a good reason for making it 32-bit? So, um, and especially now, you know, you know, boxed uh, computers that you get, you know, like from Best Buy, yeah. they're starting to regularly ship with more than four gigs of ram now yes exactly so it's like there's not too much reason for 32-bit unless you have a legacy program that you want to support that's really the only reason yeah in most of the cases you still work anyways in 64-bit so it's not an issue and if it doesn't there's a virtualization yes exactly you know even though it's a little bit more complex so uh, hey, while everyone is moving six to 64-bit, uh, let's read up on how Apple did it uh, with their ARM CPUs. Um, because the uh, latest iPhone that they announced is uh, 64-bit, uh, has a 64-bit ARM CPU in it. So, you know, the uh, main uh, thing about moving to 64-bit is not exactly the uh, larger size of addressable memory, uh, but rather the width of the internal registers that the CPU can juggle at one time. So, and that's, you know, again, you know, probably how uh, how regular expressions apparently runs a lot faster. And apparently encryption runs a lot faster on 64-bit as well. Ooh, that's a big one there. So I never thought about encryption. Yeah, just uh, don't let the NSA inside. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, this guy, you know, goes over in, uh, rather, you know, low-level juicy details of, you know, what happens. So, uh, you know, going over, like, floating point units, uh, SIMD instructions. So, and apparently, uh, uh, ARM64 is, uh, backwards compatible with the 32-bit stuff as well. So, yeah, this is, I've found this uh, rather enlightening so yeah check that out um but uh apparently there are still some applications that are stuck on 32-bit like the official firefox build for windows uh but that shouldn't hurt as much now since the uh, firefox mem shrink project is doing its job uh rather well in fact uh see firefox 24 which was released last week dramatically cuts down RAM usage on image-heavy pages, and uh, version 26 will cut it down even more. So, uh, how it does this is that it does not decode all the images in your image-heavy page all at one time, and it does not keep them in memory. It decodes them on demand when they scroll into view, apparently. Oh, wow. So it's depending upon a fast CPU, then, is what it's doing. Yeah. Like, read the image. So so if it's not... De- okay, yeah, because the decoded image is going to be bigger 
So it's just keeping the image itself in memory, and then it yeah. just decodes it as it needs it. I see. That makes sense. So, and apparently uh, Chrome does not do this. Like, I've uh, seen some comparisons with Chrome that apparently just keeps on going up and up and up. <laughs> you know, scrolling down, you know, a heavy page. So, like, I'm guessing that they probably have, uh, like, a buffer, like, they decode, like, images, like, maybe, like, two or three screens ahead or around where you're currently viewing. So you don't have the lag of it, that would make sense? Yeah. So, and, uh, you know, it would, this would work really well if, uh, Firefox was multi-threaded, which I don't think it is that much. So, but, uh, hey, if you're stuck on a 32-bit system like I am at work, um, you know, if you can save memory, the better. Yeah. Even though this seems like it mainly applies to if you're looking at images. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I imagine they did other improvements, though, too. So, like, uh, let's see, it was just today that, uh, you know, I pop op- popped open my... Uh, you know, task manager and looked at, you know, Firefox memory usage. And it was, and like I had been using this uh, browser instance for a while. So it was uh-huh. up to maybe 210 megs. 200, so, that's not bad. So, and then I open up a tab and go to the Gmail login page. It spikes like almost immediately to 260 megs. And then like five seconds later, it goes back down to 210 again. So, yeah, I saw it in action. So, uh, so are you using Firefox right now? Is that what you have open? Yep. I, I was just looking at my memory for Chrome. I'm using Chrome. I'm using... It looks like... Oh, wait, so, see, it has every process. I can't, I can't go through and hit every one unless I add them all up. Yeah. It's my main Chrome. Never mind. I was going to do a comparison, but I can't unless I sit here and add them all together. Yeah. So, uh, speaking of uh, you know memory constraints and whatnot, I noticed that my project manager, uh, like she has like a billion Chrome tabs open at all times almost, <laughs> but she only has two gigabytes of RAM in her laptop. So you know, it's a problem. <laughs> some sometimes I walk over and her hard drive light is just a solid on. <laughs> You know, just paging back and forth. So I uh, told her to uh, defrag. uh, And like, I think it was like on Monday. And uh, like, apparently she let it let it run overnight. And uh, she says that it's a little bit smoother, not a lot, but just a little bit smoother. Yeah, even with the hard drive, I mean, it's still not going to get very good if she's using the page files that much. (laughs) Yeah. So, and, you know, she also has, like, Excel or Word open, too, so. Yes. Um, so, hey, uh, speaking out, uh, speaking about Firefox, uh, keep a lookout for Shumway, uh, which is Mozilla's Flash player written in JavaScript, and it should be coming in Firefox 27. So the question is, if it's in JavaScript, does that mean any browser can take advantage of this library easily? Uh, maybe, um, compared, you know, uh, I guess it all matters on how much, uh, they're dicks about the, uh, licensing. So, like, I'm not sure if, like, any, uh, GNU project would, uh, take this on or not. 
but uh yeah um in theory yes um see this is this comes on the heels of uh mozilla's uh i think it's called pdf.js it's a javascript based uh, pdf viewer well what the what the doing with the javascript is just they're, yeah. they're doing a lot with it nowadays. It's no longer just like the manipulating an HTML page anymore. It's it, yeah, doing a lot with it. Yeah. Um. Apparently, Google came along with this browser called Chrome, and suddenly JavaScript became a lot faster. <laughs> so everyone's doing a lot more in JavaScript. So, um, let's see. I think someone even wrote a H.264 decoder in JavaScript. So you could, you know, like watch, you know, videos in your oh, browser. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if it actually has got used or released anywhere big or not. So, yeah, oh. uh, JavaScript is sort of like the wave of the future. So uh, maybe with this uh, JavaScript uh, Flash player, maybe Flash can be supported almost forever and on mobile devices. You know, that's, that's an interesting thing there, too, because... My brother, he's always, he he has an eye touch, and he was telling me how Apple doesn't like Flash, I guess he says. Yeah. So that that could open up Flash to Apple devices, perhaps, whether Apple likes it or not. So, but uh, I think there's another restriction on uh, iOS that, you know, you can't have your own browser engine. Uh, You have to use the one built into uh, Safari. Huh. So. That's nice of them. Hey, speaking about Apple, uh, they released their iPhone, and it also, uh, along with their 64-bit processor, they have a fingerprint reader in it, and that was broken a while back, um, like two weeks ago or something. Uh, now it's being argued that fingerprints are more like usernames, not passwords, because you know how you see usernames everywhere on the internet. Yes. Uh, well, you sort of leave your fingerprints everywhere. You know, sort of like, you know, you leave your fingerprints on everything you touch, you know, just as you leave your username on everything you touch on the Internet or wherever. That's a really good analogy because it's exactly how it is. So, you know, the same goes true of all other biometric things. You know, we leave them everywhere. They're not hard to capture and they're not exactly hard to uh, fake. So, you know. It, you know, this guy is making an argument, uh, Dustin Kirkland are, is making an argument that fingerprints are more like usernames and not like passwords. So don't, se- you know, secure anything with fingerprints or iris scans or whatever. So, and, you know, plus, you know, with, uh, you know, all the uh, NSA stuff going around, it's, you know, suspected, you know, how easily can Apple go into your iPhone uh-huh. And, uh, you know, hand over your fingerprints. So that takes government spying to a whole other level when they use a device that you own against you like that. That's so, uh, I could see some value perhaps in a tablet that I share with my wife, uh, where each one of us have our own accounts with independent configurations, apps, settings, whatever. Uh, we could each conveniently identify ourselves by our fingerprint, but biometrics cannot and absolutely must not be used to uh, to authenticate an identity. For authentication, you need a password or passphrase. 
something that can be independently chosen, changed, and rotated. And he says he will continue to advocate this within the Ubuntu development community as I have since 2009. So, yeah. That's uh, definitely an interesting way to think about things. So, um, I bet IBM does uh, a lot of research with, uh, you know, authentication and whatnot. In fact, uh, my IBM ThinkPad has a fingerprint reader on it, and it has, and that's like six years old. Um, Another uh, research-related things, uh, IBM has open-sourced uh, their Fused OS, and it's an experimental operating system. And the gist of this is, is that it seems to be geared towards virtualizing uh, operating systems. Uh... Uh, specifically virtualizing a specialized operating system that's geared towards a specific task uh, next to a general one like Linux. So, so were, you, were you seeing this as a host for VMs? Is that what you were understanding it? Yes. Okay. So it's kind of like the Zen server that's a Linux-based server that can host them all, and it's just like a text-based uh, OS pretty much, and it just boots up and you install a VM on it. Uh, uh, fused OS is our approach to bridge the gap between the two extremes. Uh, we combine a general purpose OS with a specialized OS and run them side by side with resource partitioning. In contrast to operating systems that run next to each other in a virtualized environment, the OS instances are much closer and can process interaction, uh, and process interactions can cross the boundary between them. Uh, they're saying something different than just VMs, then. They're, they're saying cooperation between the operating systems. Yeah. So, like, uh, for instance, you can, uh, you know, have one program, uh, like, open up a socket or whatever yeah. to another program that is running on the other operating system. That's true, because if you open up your memory space, like, sh- your shared memory... If yeah. it's a physical RAM on that machine, it doesn't matter that it's on a totally different operating system that's running. Yeah. It's still a shared memory spot between the two programs. Yeah. That's so, interesting. So, uh, yeah, IBM is doing all sorts of weird and interesting things that, you know, you know make you scratch your head like that. Um, so they say that our prototype runs the IBM Blue Gene slash 2 super com- uh, blue gene debt uh, slash Q uh, supercomputer and combines Linux with IBM node kernel uh, the production OS on blue gene slash Q compute nodes uh, bo- booting fused OS turns a node partition into a hybrid cluster and can run both Linux and C and K apps so yeah you can uh, essentially have your web server, you know, run on the Linux and have it talk to some other process, you know, on the other operating system and like it'd be all on the same machine. Yes. So, so you could have your 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 uh, prime number generator operating system running, churning out numbers, and then you have a web server that hits it and can get the latest prime number that it found or something. Yeah. So so are you overrun by spam on your blog? Not really. I've I've pretty good. So, 
Yeah, here's a, here's a list of some ideas about how to obscure form fields on a web page uh, called negative captcha. So, you know, how does it work? In a negative captcha, there are two main parts and three ancillary parts, and, you know, he goes over them. You know, uh, honeypot fields are fields that the bots see, uh, but the normal user is not supposed to see them. So, for instance, they you can, uh, you know, eject them off the left side of the page, for instance, or hide them with CSS. Um, let's see, then uh, for your real fields, you can obscure the names of them. Uh, for instance, you can hash them. So, you know, and then when uh, your form is submitted, you can, you know, take what the names are supposed to be, hash them, and compare. So that's a pretty interesting uh, suggestion that I hadn't thought of before. Uh, unless the bot is clever enough to look at the labels next to the fields. So, uh, and apparently a timestamp, a field that is used as the hash key to make the hash different on every get request and to prevent uh, replayability. Yes. Um, let's see, a spinner, a rotating key that is used in the hash method to prevent replayability. I'm not sold on its usefulness. And a secret key uh, that is used in the hashing method to prevent bots from backing out of the name of the field from the hashed field name. I was going to say, I, I don't understand what is this. This says to the secret key to prevent bots from backing out of the name of the field. How does that work? I was trying to understand that. It's uh, like, are you familiar with uh, hashing a uh, password? Yes. That the secret key would be the salt to the real name of the field. So, okay. So you you know, have your name of the field and then concatenate on this secret key and then hash the whole thing. So even if the bot is clever enough to realize, oh, this is you know hashed, and oh, then tries okay. to so run, it's like, okay, this is like the main comment field, uh, and this is like your name. This is the website field. You know, they wouldn't be able to uh, figure that out. Okay, so the, it, it was by backing out they meant figuring out what the name of the field was. Exactly. Okay, that makes more sense. I like I like the it's uh, Ruby on Rails thing. Yep. I was reading down through, and then I, I saw that the installation said gem. I was like, yeah. <laughs> yep. So, and uh, there's a, a rather clever tactic that uh, I deployed on my blog um, in that you know, if you link directly to an article and it's the first time that you're on my blog, It'll say, please refresh to comment. Ah, and which is going to be simple for most people to figure out. Yes, people will read and understand that. Bots generally won't. Um, and it uses cookies behind the scene as well. So it says, okay, is this a new session? Is this a new cookie? Then don't display the form on the page. So are you caching it between times, like so, like if they type in something like a link, you're saying, and then it asks them to refresh. So are you, they obviously have something typed into the comments box. Then does well, that mean you have something there to keep that when you refresh? Um, the comment box doesn't even appear if it's the first time on my site. Oh, okay. So they refresh the page, and then they have a comment box to comment. Yes, I get it. Okay. So you know, without the form on the page, bots, you know pass it by. Basically, I 
crawl your site and I don't see any text fields, I don't bother crawling it again, probably. It's what it must do. Yeah, and I'm relying on the fact that bots don't support cookies all that well. Makes so, sense. So, um, you know, with that in mind, then, you know, without cookies, there is no, you know, preservation of session, uh, even though I got hit pretty bad a few months ago. Um, but overall, there has been, like, no spam on my blog. So, yeah. Some food for thought. Yes. Hey, CERN again. You remember those people? The people that are now on Google Street View? Google. Oh, yes, yes. So, CERN uh, has released a simulation of the very first web browser that runs in your web browser. So it seems that we have come full circle in that the web has become a platform to emulate itself, apparently. That, that is the, the best emulator ever. So uh, for those of you who don't know, CERN, uh, not they not only built the Large Hadron Collider that's making all those black holes, they also made the web. So when I saw this, it reminded me of back in college when I was using Linux on the command line. And one of my buddies was like, oh, you like the command line too much or something like that. He's like, try posting to Facebook with it. <laughs> so I downloaded a, a text-based web browser into Linux, installed it, went into Facebook and posted on his wall. I forget what I posted. But anyways, I, I, post, I was able to post on his wall into Facebook with a web browser. I had to like, fake it and tell it I was Chrome or something because it wouldn't let me in with a normal browser agent. I could get in and post with it. So, yeah, um, I'm not exactly sure, you know, what's up with it. Um, you know, it says, you know, type in a reference number back, return for more or help. And I'm pressing return, and I'm looking at my blog on this, but it doesn't seem to want to go past the uh, the first article at all. Which makes... Font's not rendering right for me in my web browser... I can't even read what it says. It's just all. Maybe it's supposed to be like that. I don't. No, it's not. Cause it's not from the screenshots. I love how when you when you you load a page, it just kind of goes line by line and draws it out. It's pretty good. Yeah. So yeah, fun stuff. Yes. Ah, uh, IE actually renders it right. For the reason Chrome was wrong. So, yeah, um, this has just happened to me twice during uh, since we've started recording. In that, uh, you know, that arrow shake feature that Windows has, like if you shake a oh. window around, like everything else minimizes. Yes, that is the most useless and perhaps annoying feature ever. <laughs> like it's not obvious. It's totally not needed ah uh, you just accidentally shook something I take it yes <laughs> yeah I think that's the only time I've ever used that feature is by accident like I was showing someone something I just it was kind of like you know I was bored or whatever I was flicking the window back and forth I was like everything goes like, what did I do <laughs> uh, you press the red button yes so. See, it's it's like if you want to minimize some everything, it's incredibly faster to press Win key B 
exactly. than just shake your mouse for three seconds. I mean, really, or even that the button on your right hand corner of your desktop. Yeah, but next faster. to the clock. Yes, that one. I mean, they put it there in a pretty good spot if you want to hit it fast. I guess um, if you used it a lot. Uh, but at least on my system, it's in the lower left because I have the taskbar running down the lower left side of my primary monitor. Ah, okay. Windows my system. Windows 7 is like the first Windows operating system where you can put your taskbar vertically and it does not look retarded. I've never really tried it vertically in Windows 7 before. I always hated it. Yeah, it's not it's not too bad. So, and like to me it doesn't seem like you're uh wasting uh as much space. Because, like, most of the time I have a huge blank spot on my uh, taskbar. Oh, okay. So I see with your vertically, then you're not as much empty gap between your programs and your clock. Then Yeah. So, anyways, uh, uh, Jimmy Wales. Have you heard of him? He's the Wikipedia guy. Is he the guy that started it, or...? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Jimmy Wales uh, tells Silicon Valley to stop judging people and even themselves, by their age. So this article points out that, you know, a lot of the entrepreneurs, uh, tech entrepreneurs, are even beyond, you know, 40. You know, even when they started, you know, doing their thing. So, and, uh, you know, uh, Zuckerberg, uh, the Facebook guy, uh, noted at an event, I want to stress the importance of being young and technical. Young people are just smarter. Why are more chess masters under 30? So, uh, smarter. Willing to work for pizza for the promise of untold riches. That's the myth of the youth movement in Silicon Valley. If only if it were true. See, that, that was, it was interesting because you made a point too in the article about how older people were kind of more experienced and they maybe understand the market better and how how to actually deliver a product, though. So he's saying that yeah. since they have the advantage. So uh, Jimmy Wales uh, points out that he turned 35 when he founded Wikipedia. So, And it seems that if you're not a billionaire, by the time you're 35, you're worthless in Silicon Valley. Um, so... The premise of the question is wrong. A better question might be how can we in the tech community make sure that unusual success at a very early age is not mistakenly thought of as the norm? So, according to data from the Kaufman Foundation, the highest rate of entrepreneurship in America has shifted to the 55 to 64 age group, uh, with people over 55 twice as likely to found successful companies than those between 25 and 34. So is that a statistic for, like, all companies in general or just tech companies? I think it's all companies in general. Okay. Let me take a look at that. Um, oh, words. Lots of words. So, so yeah, this uh, doesn't really make me feel that bad in the fact that, you know, I have absolutely no idea of if I were to start a company of what it would do. Yeah, I know that that's a tough one. Like I've thought about ideas before and stuff, but it's like you come up with an idea that you could actually market and make money at is tough. Um, you know, I'm sort of at a uh, 
well, I guess it'd be a writer's block, but it'd be an entrepreneurial block. So, like, I am literally bankrupt on ideas of starting a company. This is the thing is, it's not just an idea. You need something that's going to make money that you can sell, even if it's a good idea. You that's even harder. It. Yes, so, exactly. Uh, uh, not that age is not without its problems. Uh, Netflix CEO Reed Hastings pointed out, I started uh, Netflix DVD rental when I was 37, and I first started streaming when I was 47. Maybe <laughs> not too bad after 35, except that all-nighters are definitely harder. <laughs> so, yeah, interesting uh, observations there and very yeah. uh, insightful. I-, I heard once that they were saying that we were talking about companies and how they shield developers from like the real world. I heard that Microsoft is very good at shielding shielding developers. But there's a lot of people that will quit Microsoft and go try to start their own company up, and they realize like all oh, the hassle of dealing with customers and stuff, and then like they quit uh-huh. the, the startup and go back to just underneath the company developing again. Yeah. So, uh, and now for something that should have been included last week, but somehow didn't. Uh, Warner Brothers is being brought to court for issuing DMCA takedown requests for stuff they don't have the rights to. So this is, uh, you know, one of those things that, you know, automated uh, DMCA takedown systems have just gone completely out of control. So, like, they've, you know, posted uh, takedowns for, uh, like, open source software. They've... (laughs) posted takedowns to uh, like other people's movies you know like Warner Brothers you know ordering takedowns of say Sony movies like, hey let me help you out with that <laughs> so you know that's uh, you know pretty much ruled out by the DMCA you know as it is there are you know punishments and penalties for that uh, apparently Microsoft's automated notices are not good either. They apparently want their own Wikipedia page delisted from Google. So, uh, yeah. See, last week, for example, one of Microsoft's notices asked Google to take down the Wikipedia entry for Office 2007. Uh, as can be seen below in the same notice, the software giant also wants a perfectly legitimate tutorial on Microsoft.com to be taken down. <laughs> that was interesting that they're actually catching stuff from their own own website. and <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I think they would have filtered that one, maybe. Yeah. So, uh, copyright has also has a nasty effect of driving books out of print. Uh, someone re- went and researched books on Amazon by decade and found out that there aren't as many books available from about 1920 to 2000, but so many more before 1920 and like the 80 years, you know, the other 80 year block before that. What I found interesting, though, is they weren't including like recent published books, or maybe that's what the point was, was books don't make it past the second publishing if they're under copyright or because yeah. it's like, you know, that's 13 years ago, 2000 was. So there's a pretty good gap there that they're missing. Yeah. So, you know, the idea is that, uh, you know, companies, you know, have a monopoly on the rights to, you know, print a book. Yeah. 
so that, you know, if a book is old, you know, the idea is, you know, oh, there's not much demand for it as compared to new books, so we'll just, you know, do the new books anyway. And it's not until they come out of copyright that, you know, people decide, oh, this is good stuff, let's publish it. <laughs> so, yes. you know, you know, stuff originally published, you know, back a hundred years ago is apparently even more popular than stuff published 20 years ago. So statistically, is this showing that the copyright law needs to somehow be shortened? I don't know what a reasonable shortening would be. So, I mean, like right now, it's the life of the author plus 70 years or something. That's a long time. Yeah. And, you know, the whole point of copyright law is to incentivize authors to create more things. Yes. It's pretty hard to incentivize a dead guy. <laughs> There's no reason for to to let a dead guy have incentive for 70 years. Yeah. I mean, I, I could to some extent see the thing of, you know, uh, I can't think of who it was, but there's some author or, or artist I heard about once who was, who was doing work like shortly before he died and the intention was, actually, I think he didn't publish it. He he did it and set it aside and it's like, the, gave it to his kid essentially and was like, here, this is yours. You can make money off of it when I die. That way you have money to inherit yeah. basically from me. So I guess I can see in that case. But yeah, 70 years is kind of excessive after you're dead. Yeah, and, you know, you really have to have a hit in order for, you know, like, royalties to make a difference. And even then, they sort of, like, fade out after about 10 or even 20 years. So, like, maybe 30 years would be ideal. Because it's... You're saying 30 years after the guy's dead? Well, 30 years after publishing. Oh, okay. So, which that could be reasonable. I mean, like you figure thirty years, thirty years time, you should have enough time to write something else and exactly stuff like that. And then, like after you know, like stuff from thirty years ago can be included in you know, like new culture stuff. So, like for instance, if it was thirty years, then like Star Wars would be in the public domain. Wow, is that old? Yeah, like nineteen seventy-eight or something. Okay. So, yeah. so like, you could, you know, start making your own things off of Star Wars in the very same way that uh, Walt Disney based a lot of his cartoons off of, you know, like, fairy tales. Yes. You know, if those fairy tales were not in the public domain, Walt Disney would have got, would have never happened and would not have established a company which is, oddly enough, campaigning for more copyright. Ah, uh, th that is true, because th that is all of his ideas where they came from was other ideas. So, so that's, that, that's, that's the, the mix there is while you have to protect the author to promote more, more creativity, it stifles creativity to protect the guy too much. Yeah. So, uh, and then there's a quote, uh, from here, a book published during the presidency of Chester A. Arthur has a greater chance of being in print today than one published during the time of Reagan. So, and uh, you could probably argue that, you know, more books were published during the time of Reagan. So, you know, you know the books, you know, from, you know, like 30 years ago, uh, you know, a fewer percentage of them would be in print now. 
but apparently, even if you count it by the numbers, still fewer. I don't know what they've done to get there. I want to deprecate something. And I want to deprecate the way that Demandware uh, handles private keys. Um, the Demandware is the uh, platform that I use at work. Uh, we use it to build uh, e-commerce websites. So, you know, websites that you buy stuff on. Yeah. So, you know, even though it just happened today, uh, I need to, like, recall it uh, clearly. So, like, the whole idea is that we're using... Uh, uh, PayPal. Uh, you know PayPal, right? Yes. So, uh, apparently there's a few ways that you can uh, integrate PayPal into your application. Uh, one way is the uh, three-token method, uh, which uh, involves the username uh, for the, you know, like an API username, an API password, and an API signature. And I'm pretty sure that's what's meant by three tokens, you know, three fields that you send over. So this would be the uh, not the consumer, the website itself, the merchant would be giving a merchant username, password, and token to, to PayPal. Pay yes. So the web server would be, you know, talking to PayPal yes. uh, rather than the uh, end user. Uh, the other uh, method is the API certificate um, in which, you know, it's sort of like an SSH certificate. It's, you know, based on public-private key uh, system and whatever, in that you know, a, uh, PayPal sends you a certificate, which then you give to PayPal, and it's like heavily encrypted and everything. So, uh, you know, uh, thankfully, Demandware supports uh, uh, client-side private keys, um, and I've mentioned this on the fringe. In that, you know, the classic way of doing an HTTPS connection is that the server has you know some sort of certificate and key that's stored on the server and that is given to you know the client or whatever connects to it the server presents the certificate but uh in the PayPal case uh the client would present a certificate to the server the server being PayPal and you know then stuff would go back and forth so uh, you know, thankfully, Demandware supports that way as well. So, you know, after finally getting the certificate back from, you know, wherever it's supposed to come from, um, you know, finally did that and I had to, you know, go through OpenSSL. And thankfully, PayPal provides very clear instructions on how to do this. Um, you know, then after that, I uploaded it to the Demandware uh, business manager which is like sort of like the back end thing. Uh, I did that, and you know, so I'm testing on the staging environment, and I had to like rework code so it would go to the PayPal production environment from our staging. Uh, so that worked. So I'm like, yes, I'll go ahead and push this out to production now. And uh, I did that and made sure that uh, the certificate was in you know, production, and, you know, I even tested it, and yes, it redirects to PayPal just fine. So, excuse me. So, 
I go over and uh, to the project manager and ask her to, you know, test PayPal since, you know, you have a PayPal account, right? Just don't order the thing. <laughs> so she uh, goes over to it and uh, it times out, uh, which is the exact same behavior we've been seeing without the certificate. Um, apparently the uh, call to PayPal times out after about 30 seconds because the certificate is not presented which is strange because I know damn well that it is there and I just tried it and it worked this goes back to the bug it works on my machine <laughs> exactly so I go over there take a look at it again and um, you know everything looks okay I tell her to try it again and it fails again so i'm like okay i go to another uh another person and ask her to you know go ahead and try this on yours and it fails for her too i'm like okay i think i might be going insane here so then i open up another browser on my machine go through the same process it works um Let's see, I think, yeah, I opened it up in Opera. I opened the site up in Internet Explorer uh, 10, and the whole site is broken. I can't add anything to my cart, so I can't even go through the checkout process <laughs> to trigger the thing. And, uh, you know, I make a mental note to, you know, go notify the uh, graphic designers about that. So, and then I test it in Firefox, and then it fails in my Firefox. So I'm like, okay. Then I go back to uh, the last user I tried and tell her to, you know, try it in a different browser. And it suddenly works for her. So then I'm like, okay. And like, I've been looking at the logs all this time. Mm -hmm. And it has to deal with the way that everything is set up. So... Like, we have, like, a few instances because, uh, you know, we don't run our run this on our own servers. It's, like, a cloud-based platform. So there, there's a few developer sandboxes, and then there's a staging environment, a development, and a production environment. And each of these, you know, runs on their own, you know, uh, blade, you know, computers in a data center, yeah. I guess. You know, each one of these, you know, belongs to just one blade, uh, whereas the production uh, runs on, like, three or so. It can scale up and down, but it was, like, running on three blades at the time. So, you know, I'm looking at the logs, and from one blade, it's, you know, the logs are showing that PayPal is always working on this blade. But on the two others, it's only giving me, you know, timeout messages. You know, like PayPal, yes. call to PayPal, you know, timed out, you know, java.net.io exception, whatever. Um, and a whole bunch of stack trace. But uh, so I'm thinking, okay, I think this might be the problem. So I open up my Firefox that, you know, is, you know, that failed. I log into the business manager there. And lo and behold, the private key is gone. The, you know, the key that I uploaded to make everything work, it's not there. I go over to my Chrome browser, which, uh, you know, is the one, one of the ones that worked for me. I go into the business manager there, 
and lo and behold, the private key is there. And Dude. and I'm on, you know, the same environment and stuff. So, but I think it's like the load balancer or something like whatever is, you know, whatever blade I happened to be talking to at the time was the one that got the certificate. So I opened it up in the same browser. So I was still talking to the same blade. Oh, the same connection going on there. So yeah. that's why it worked for me. Yeah. But, you know, the luck of the draw, you know, for everyone else was that they got, you know, one of the blades that didn't have this private key. <laughs> so that's my uh, next uh, thing to conquer, if indeed that is the problem. So, you know, the idea is that I'm in this business manager. Anything I change here affects, you know, everything in this environment. It's not specific to one machine. Yeah, that was, uh, as I was trying to figure out from how you were talking, it did sound like a global configuration and not something that should be specific to the machine. Yeah, and that's what drove me nuts. So, you know, I've, uh, you know, asked on the, uh, the Demandware forums, hey, you know, has anyone got this before? What should I do? So, uh, and the, uh, the way that we, you know, uh, you know, push or deploy code out to the other environments. I'm not sure, you know, like what specific kind of deploy I need to do. Uh, is this, is our private keys even pushed out? Is there like some other specific private key that gets mixed in with the others that, you know, the other machines can't read or something? Yeah. So, you know, thank goodness that, you know, these certificate you know, worked at least once. Yeah. So, so you know you have something good there at least. You just have to get the right combination. Exactly. So, yeah. So how fast can you guys deploy? You were talking about changing it to prod and stuff. Can, can you actually, like if a customer gives a bug and it's a high priority, can you guys actually fix it and then deploy to the customer in like a day or a week or whatever? Oh, yeah. Um... Yeah, you know, it's just the uh, the process of you know verifying is everything okay? Is nothing else broken? So okay. So and like we have you know very strict uh, procedures of you know like only changing this and the idea of like what's in the trunk in our subversion it's what's on production. So like it gets manually merged in, so we only know that you know okay these files changed. Okay. So it's just more so about being careful when it breaks stuff, but you guys really can deploy quickly if you want to implement a feature and yeah. push it out to them. So, you know, if we want to, you know, deploy to production, you know, we log into staging and there's, you know, like a replication area and it's like, okay, you know, push, you know, like data out, which is, you know, like, you know, images, it's products and stuff like that. And then there's code. So... And like we can be selective about what we want to, you know, push out. We can be, yeah. you know, or not. So, yeah, looks like, uh, you know, there is a problem. It seems to be solvable, but you know, what's the best way to go about this, and what's the best way to prevent this? Uh, because apparently, my team lead has never messed with uh, private keys either. I see you're all by yourself in fixing this, and yeah, so. Yeah, the answer is you get three different connections to the 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 different blade servers and add it to each of the ones. 
That could so, be your standard, or, standard operating procedure. Or, or call up the guys that run the platform and say, hey, we need this private certificate everywhere. So... So it's hosted off-site, then you're... The oh, yeah. Stuff. Okay. Oh, yeah. We... we Let's see. We own... The only uh, servers we have are file servers that are, like, wheezing in the break room area. And, like, I've wheezing. never... Yeah, like, they have, like, dust on them and stuff. Okay. Um, that I've never accessed any files on them. Huh. So, like, pretty much everything is uh, in Google Docs now. So, and the, you know, the environments that we use, you know, belongs, belongs all to Demandware. Okay. And, like, there is, like, no other way to, you know, have your own instance of this on your own machine. Ah. So, like, you open up Eclipse and it, you know, connects to Demandware somewhere. So. Okay. So this, this seems like it should be a problem that other people have had then if it's hosted by Demandware and yeah. everything. Yeah. Surely someone else has more than one machine for load balancing. Yep. So, um, I guess that's something that they uh, don't exactly try out in staging. So, And, like, another weird thing is, so there's the staging environment, and you deploy to production from staging. You also deploy to the development environment from staging. So it's like a what? split tree or something. It's really weird. You think that you would, you know, initially deploy to the development environment yeah and then to staging and then from staging to production but mm. but it, they've sort of like taken the thing from the middle almost yeah that's that that is an odd way of doing it so uh, anyways uh if you would uh, like to be a guest or uh, send feedback uh we did not get feedback this week so I guess everything's okay. Uh, <laughs> use the contact button. And uh, International Backup Awareness Day, so back up your stuff. Uh, hi, Mom. So, uh, let's see. I guess I've uh, explained to everyone what I'll be doing, uh, at least tomorrow. Um, and, uh, yeah, it looks like it'll just be another week to chill out. I have fun fixing your bug, then. <laughs> Or at least another weekend to chill out, that is. So, um, anything exciting happening with you coming up? Well, at this point, it's just design docs at work. But, of course, like you said, I have the weekend. And I have muzzleloader season starting here soon, the 19th. So that's what I'm looking forward to, is that. I think that'll be fun. Cool. So, yeah, another, uh, another guy on this network, uh, uh, was out hunting, uh, like, for the past couple of weekends, and, uh, like, he doused himself in deer pee. <laughs> so. Sounds you know, like an archer hunter to me. Oh, yeah. So. All right. Well, I guess that's it. So, uh, have a good one. Okay. You too. We'll see you.